load the plates and lift the weights And we are mates and weights are great And as of late we pontificate about the weights And make a podcast! Sumo is cheating! This is Weekly Weights with Alex and Will Welcome to Weekly Weights, this is episode 107 I'm Alex Hayes, with me is Will Hello And we are in a new recording studio today, aren't we Will? Will's moved across the bridge to the eastern suburbs. Yep. And uh, we're at his house, and it's nice. Yeah. And I've got like a, a newfound air of superiority about me. Ever since I've been in the eastern suburbs, I've realized that the rest of Sydney's trash. You're a, and you're a homeowner as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, and my parents, they've asked me to come over for dinner a few times, and I've just refused to cross the bridge because that's not what I'm about now that I'm here. So you come here, bitch. <laughs> I would never say that to my own mother, who well, is a sweetheart and who, for some reason, likes you, Alex. Yeah. I always ask her why, and she says, I can't really put a finger on it, but... I feel like I'm a different person around her than I am around you, Will. Well, maybe you should try bringing out a little bit more of the way you behave around her or around me, and I'd like you better too. <laughs> um, That's fair. So today's episode, we're going to talk, a, like, we're going to have a talk that is... philosophical and 50% practical. Um, And kind of what came to mind was I was listening to somebody talk about what they liked in training. And they were saying, they were talking about how like, you know, it's one thing to squat as much as you can possibly squat, but there's something that's just really appealing to them about seeing people, you know, squat high bar and bury it and how like those, um, those videos they see of weightlifters squatting in that style are just, there's something athletically impressive about it to them. And Likewise, you know, as much as they respect a very heavy, say, sumo deadlift, they really like seeing people deadlift with, like, textbook deadlifting form, and that's kind of what they aspire to in their lifting. And I was having the discussion, and I was kind of like, you know, none of those thoughts are at all invalid. Um, But as powerlifters, we're probably pretty keyed into the idea of, like, being as optimal as as we can and, you know, maximizing what we can get back within the constraints of the rules. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about you know, what are some of the aesthetic considerations that we might have that we're maybe not even aware of when we lift? And by aesthetic, I don't necessarily mean the way we look. I mean, like, the way we want our lifting to be or the way we want our training to be. Um, What does it mean to have them? Can it be useful? Where can they be detrimental? And, you know, what are some compromises that we might make or choose to make in our training as a result of them? But before we do that, we're going to talk... We're going to be the love doctors that we both are because we got in our audience request form, I think my favorite question so far, um, because obviously this person's recognized us as being romantics. They said... Before, we, before, before you actually say it, Will, yeah. I think this is you submitting this question. I promise, I swear from the bottom of my heart, I had nothing to do with this. This is you asking for a friend, aka asking for yourself. Sure. The The question is, gym crushes, hyphen, when is it appropriate to pursue? Not so bad in commercial gyms when you don't see people that much, but it's a bit risky and awkward if it's a small gym slash club. Alex, I don't, why don't you just... So many thoughts occur in my brain. Why don't you start with what you're thinking hearing that? Well, the first thing is I've never had to deal with this, which is How'd funny because... Well, we met in the gym, but mm-hmm. I certainly didn't pursue anything in the gym. Yeah. And that was going to be my advice is, like, I, I feel like on the creeper meter, talking to a girl or a guy... And in a flirty way at the gym is like right up there on the creeper meter. I feel like it's one of the creepiest things you can do. Would you agree, Will? No, um, I actually, I genuinely do disagree. And I think, um, uh, look, I'm going to answer this mostly from the perspective of a guy because obviously that's the perspective that I have. And I have dated a couple of girls that I met in the gym and the first way like if you're a guy and you're interested in a girl at the gym and you want to like signal your interest to her and maybe start like a very flirtatious conversation in a way that's going to put you off on a good foot the first thing i'd do is like see them doing an exercise maybe like a squat and make sure that they're definitely not asking for advice and that's your in 
because you go right up to them and you interrupt their set and you just start giving them unsolicited advice. And if you can drop some stats about maybe how strong you are in the conversation and while you're doing it, like try and put on an air of like superiority and threat that makes them feel very uncomfortable being in the gym unless they're around like a strong knowledgeable guy like you in future and just give them as much unsolicited advice as you can and then sort of subtly flex and walk off. If you can do that... I'd say you're probably two-thirds of the way to making that girl your girlfriend immediately. What do you think about that, Alex? And to add to that, if if you do any gesturing as you're giving advice, make sure you're flexing your biceps. Yeah, as much as you possibly as can. As much as you can. Yeah. Um, and like I said, incredibly important that they're not asking for help. Because if they're asking for help, then they could misconstrue you giving them advice as like actually having their best interests at heart. And you would never want that. So don't do it unless it's definitely unprovoked. Um, on a more serious note, I actually do disagree with Alex about about approaching people at the gym. Um, no, let me clarify before you go. Yeah, go. I don't think approaching anyone at the gym is necessarily creepy. I think being flirtatious, I think, is creepy in a gym setting because it's a public space. Um, the way that I would go about it, which you will probably will agree with, is like try to invite them to do something that is outside of the gym or maybe like organize to do a training session together in the gym if that's the only thing that you can organize but i would say like you know have a converse have a genuine conversation with them that isn't fitness related and try to like you know maybe see if you can go get a coffee after the training or like meet them somewhere for dinner or something like that and kind of take it away from the gym yeah i think that's good advice what i was what i was basically going to say is like the reality is that in this day and age gyms are social spaces you will see familiar faces when you go to the gym quite a bit and just by virtue of being in the gym together you guys have something in common and that's kind of like having like some shared interest or something in common is like the first thing that tends to help people sort of go from strangers to friends and then possibly to romance and so i don't think there's anything inherently wrong with having like a gym crush or finding somebody in the gym attractive and i also don't think that there's anything necessarily wrong with signaling it but I do think the way in which you do it is important. And I think what Alex said is nice too, but I would also say like, as far as advice goes for picking somebody up in the gym, all of the things that would make you somebody who is like friendly and approachable in any other domain of life should apply to the gym. So giving people unsolicited advice like a dickhead while making making him feel threatened in the space is a really bad way to pick somebody up in a bar. And it's obviously a bad way to pick people up in the gym too. But if you're somebody who is friendly smiles is polite says hello to people but doesn't like invade their space or waste their time you know and is like obviously just you know good natured and friendly if you happen to have something in common people are going to be more inclined to say yeah sure i'll come grab a coffee with you after training and you could just start very casually and sort of see whether it's worth pursuing like that but i would do that well before i did anything like dm somebody that you see at the gym that you've never spoken to in life in like a creepy way or make lewd comments to them on the gym floor or any of the other things that are just like stereotypical bad behavior because they're bad behavior. But personally, I think it's a tacit compliment if somebody likes you and are willing to go out of their way to say hello. And I think most people respond that way as well if you're friendly to them. Yeah, and just like in any other space, like trying to strike up a conversation that shows that you're genuinely interested in what they have to say or what their interests are like if in a, in a gym context like you know you both have training in common ask them about their training like ha- show genuine interest in their training and like they will probably reciprocate yeah good times to not speak to people if they have their headphones in and they're plainly kind of in the zone doing like a bit of a circuit or something probably not good to walk up and do the like take your headphones off and try and talk to them thing that's a good time don't lean on their bar or something right when they're about to start setting up because that just makes you annoying. Um, don't interrupt their conversations with other people. Um, what other good What other good ways to not pick up successfully in the gym are there? Oh, here's one. Actually, this, this does come to mind because Alex and I first worked together as receptionists at Fitness First. And there were a couple of receptionists we worked with who were like quite pretty girls. And what I always found funny was that guys would come in and barely look them in the eye 
and run upstairs. But then the second they had a pump and we're all sweaty, they'd come like swaggering down and like lean flexing against the gym desk and try and talk to the girls as though like they were just exuding masculine energy and suddenly 10 times more attractive. And it was really transparent that they like thought they looked good and that the girls would be more into them then. But like the change in their behavior was always so jarring. But the reverse would happen with girls a lot of the time is like if girls wanted to come in and say hello, oftentimes they'd feel more comfortable talking on the way in than on the way out when they feel like sweaty and gross and want to just go home and stuff. Not everyone's like that. Um, But I also think just being aware that although some people are having a really, really good time in the gym, some people aren't at their most comfortable and most approachable there is important too. So if your gym crush is somebody who doesn't look like they're having a really good time, I wouldn't maybe go in and be immediately flirty. I'd probably just be like friendly and supportive before I went to like flirt, you know, because you don't want to flirt with people when they feel bad. Yeah, on on that point, like read the room, read their body language. Like if you give off, if you're giving off a certain vibe and they're not reciprocating, like don't push it. Just kind of maybe try again next time or My vibe in the gym is alpha. And so, so often the girls aren't reciprocating, you know? You must have a different definition of alpha to... The general population will. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm bloody Omega. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think that's enough love advice. Oh, wait. What's the, the last bit? Uh, talking about a small gym club I don't versus a big a commercial difference. gym. Does it make a difference? I feel like um, there's more likely to be like people who are closer in a small gym club environment. So I guess you have to be a little bit more careful. But you also probably have more reason to talk to people if you're one of the few people in a room, right? Yes, true. But also you can't be like trying to talk to every guy or girl because they all know each other and they'll all be friends. Whereas like in a commercial gym setting, you could probably like shoot your shot a little bit. Yeah, well here I'm presuming that this person has a gym crush and it's not like I want to go to the gym to just slay. Like if you wanted to go to the gym to just slay, you'd like join curves or something and and just quit training properly, you know? (laughs) So I'm presuming they have one person they want to talk to. Yeah, that's that's fair. (laughs) And in a commercial gym, to be honest, the other thing is there's probably as many people who are not really that serious about training in a commercial gym as there are people who are serious. So it's probably, if anything, more of a social environment. Like, I know so many people who've made good friends just by going to the gym at the same time with them at, like, Fitness First. They talk all the time. Like, if you're a fixture in a gym and somebody's always there at the same time as you, that's, like, a pretext to just be like, oh, hey, how are you doing? I actually think it would be probably easier to pursue a gym crush in a commercial gym because people tend to train on their own and like they rarely will organize to train with other people at commercial gyms it's more of like a sort of individual endeavor yeah and versus you can complain like a, about their cancellation policies and shit together <laughs> <laughs> but versus like a small club kind of feel like you know in a powerlifting context I will organize with my friends when I want to train so that I can get a spot, I can get encouragement, I can, you know, have a yarn between sets and stuff. And like, that's part of what makes going to the gym uh, like a good experience for me. Mm. So it's probably more likely that you're going to be able to like t- get some alone time with someone in a commercial gym because they're more likely to be on their own. Yeah. I'm, before we leave this topic, I think the most important thing is if someone's not interested. So let's say that the young Padawan who asked this question, my alter ego, um, goes and is at the gym, is friendly, says hello, tries to find out a bit about this other person, and they're just not that into it, probably leave them alone after that. Because that's the other thing is you don't want to like, it's one thing to be friendly to somebody and shoot your shot, but you don't want to like make their training space or their enjoyment time bad you know so read the room yeah read the room um i I wonder what it's like to be rejected (laughs) (laughs) do you know alex no no i don't know but i presume it'd suck so just yeah keep it cool (laughs) let's move on to today's you know what maybe we should just start a romance podcast what do you reckon weekly something wax (laughs) Oh. <laughs> okay so so we're talking do you about do you want to edit that out yeah maybe no just keep it in yeah probably keep it in um so, so we're talking we're talking about lifting and the things that kind of draw us to it and when this person was saying to me you know i want to like squat high bar and and deadlift conventional and all this stuff my like my gut reaction was that's so dumb why would you limit yourself but then i thought when I started powerlifting for the first year, I didn't wear a belt. 
I didn't have knee sleeves or wrist wraps or anything. And like part of the thing that made it cool to me was I was lifting in the way that was like most relatable to the people that went to the gym to me. And I was like, I just want to, I want to lift in a way that everyone can relate to and say, this is how much I lift. And to some degree, like one of the reasons that raw lifting is appealing to so many people is because like people don't really understand equipment and like, you know, a bench press of 200 kilos raw and 200 kilos equipped don't sound different to the lay public, but they are really different things to powerlifters. So in some way, I think we all operate with some constraints. And so the first question I wrote down was for Alex, which is when you started powerlifting or like when you were just first thinking about it, how were you, how were you sort of envisaging what the sport was? Well, I had only seen limited number of video on the internet and a lot of it was like kind of split between basically the stuff that was out there on YouTube, which was like half West side stuff, elite FTS, um, Mark Bell, Stan efforting like that crowd. And then the other half was like Candido and like IPF stuff. And then like following the IPF Facebook page, they would post world records and stuff like that. And it seemed like two completely distinct camps. And the way that I saw like pushing the rules to the nth degree, which was kind of what they all do, but in a different way, I didn't really find that very appealing. I I kind of liked the idea of sort of just squatting where you feel comfortable versus squatting out super wide just because you get an extra few kilos out of it. And like the in the bench press, for instance, like super big arch um, and max width grip never really appealed to me. Just like, you know, big sink into the chest and like a huge leg drive explosion never really appealed to me either. So I was kind of like in the middle of those two worlds. Yeah, so for me, like when I think back to it, I actually had no concept of what a powerlifting competition was which is so weird. Like I thought, what I thought of powerlifting was basically it's a sport where people train really, really hard lifting heavy stuff and like they're not really concerned with doing too much fluff work. They just like get barbells and lift heavy. And I was like, that's really cool and that's what I'm into. And so I think because I didn't have any idea about competition or competition constraints, like I didn't know you had to pause a bench press in powerlifting comps. Honestly, didn't have the first clue. You know, I knew that a squat had to be a certain depth to be legitimate, but I just believed that anyway, so I didn't know. Um, So to me, like, just that idea of, well, I'm just going to be interested in lifting heavy barbells and focusing focusing on strength first and foremost and less about my aesthetic, that was, like, what attracted me to powerlifting. And because that was such, like, a nebulous concept, I was then able to form this idea around it of, well, you know, the like the coolest thing to me is just walking in with my body and just lifting and not having any supportive equipment so i'll do that too but i guess coming from that free place let me sort of self-define this is how i want to train because this is what's interesting to me like this is this is fundamentally what drew me to the sport and it's funny it wasn't actually the sport itself it was the idea of how they train yeah and like that was very similar to me in like when i actually started lifting weights it was for rugby same as you and i enjoyed the process of getting stronger and the idea of like you know, using different rep ranges for different goals and like using different exercises for different goals. And, you know, each exercise has a particular reason why you do it. And like learning about that along the way was more interesting to me than like actually playing rugby in the end. Mm. So then I kind of like went away from rugby and went into lifting. But I remember like the first powerlifting gym that I joined, PCYC in North Sydney, there was a comp on on a weekend one day when I was training. And this was back in the only equipped days. This was like 2012. And I'd never seen a powerlifting comp before. And I could hear a bunch of noise out because I had it in like this um, sort of like rec room area. Yeah. And had the warm-up area in like the boxing, in the boxing ring shed. They had a couple of racks put in there. And then the actual gym was maybe like 20 or 30 meters away. And I could hear all this racket going on and people were like cheering this guy who was walking up to squat. He's big, super heavyweight in equipment wearing wraps. Like he was about to time out. And like, I obviously didn't know, I didn't know what any of this was. And this big, fat, super heavyweight, red face, like looked like the most uncomfortable person in the world. I was like, what on earth is that sport? That looks absolutely terrible. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, that is, that is like the least attractive thing I've ever seen. Like who would want to do that? Mm. And then, you know, looking back on it, it's like, oh, that, that is just the sport. And then when you get into it, you understand it a bit more. Yeah. And I for think- me, for me, that just seemed like a, that just didn't seem like training. It didn't seem like the same the same world. 
No, well, it's... I mean, it fundamentally doesn't resemble what I do when I walk in the gym. And I think that's one of the... Oh, well, actually, now waddling around and looking out of shape is pretty much what I do in the gym. But, but like, the idea of watching somebody, you know, doing, like, high squats to a box in briefs with a super wide stance for Westside style training, like, I could see the effort, but I wasn't, like, that's not how... You know, that's not how I squat. Mm. And at the time, when I was first really thinking about doing powerlifting was actually when I was training for weightlifting. And so when I saw a weightlifter squat, to me, I was like, you know, wow, like that's so athletic and impressive and it's obviously really heavy and strong, you know. But fundamentally, there was a commonality that they were like lifting something heavy and being effortful and I thought that was cool. Mm. And and I did my first competition high bar. Did you do your first high bar as well? No, I didn't do my first high bar. It was just bad. I I probably trained for seven years before I even put a bar low, in a low bar position. Mm. So for me, it was like, that was what looked better. That was what, was more comfortable to me than putting it lower. Well, that was the next question is, are there styles of lifting that you actually think are like cooler or that I'm, I'm actually curious whether now you consider certain styles of lifting or um, yeah, certain styles of lifting like more legitimate or impressive um, than others. But did you ever perceive that as well? Yeah. Like, like I mentioned earlier, I didn't really see the validity in the like ultra max whip, uh, grip with bench with a huge arch and a three-inch ROM. Like, I remember seeing Eddie Berglund bench press in about 2013 or 2014 before I'd even done a comp, and I was like, that's bullshit. Like, that's, <laughs> that's yeah. ridiculous. And then yeah. now, like, I I can kind of... I can obviously contextualize it, and I can say, like, that is a separate skill in itself, and that is, you know, within the rule book, and it's perfectly legitimate. But it doesn't fit with my skill set. Like, I don't have that... Those short arms. I don't have that mobility in my spine and I have the skill of being able to get in that position so I think it's just it was honestly just a lack of a lack of understanding than anything else see like this is not to take anything away from Eddie Berglund but I would say still now when I see his bench presses I'm impressed obviously and as a powerlifter I'm like he's the absolute optimal but there is something still more immediately appealing just in a visceral sense to me of watching like Julius Maddox bench press when he just like he lies down mm. he's, you know, he's got a little bit of an arch in his upper back and he just monsters the weight mm. there's something really cool about that yeah and like I still I still get more excited watching watching like you know weightlifters squat like high bar really deep than I do watching people squat with a super wide stance like I still feel that way but as a powerlifter were I to suit one more like I'm not Eddie Berglund either I can't bench for shit but you know, where I like where I suited to that, I would do it because it's part of my sport. But I still have that same aesthetic interest in in lifting that seems kind of pure and where ranges of motion are a bit longer and it's less about like maximizing leverages and more about lifting weights, you know, over longer ranges. I guess there's there's something about that generalist approach that is still cool to me. Yeah, I think it I, I certainly think it looks better, but at the end of the day, we're all in this for the same purpose. Mm. And if you're trying to lift as much weight as you can you need to be as efficient as you can and uh, you know if you told Julius Maddox to bench like Eddie Berglund he'd bench less because he's literally the best in the world doing what he does and he's found the technique that works for him well the fundamental question of today is are we actually all in this for the same reason or if somebody were to walk into you um, and this is actually something I well I wanted to give another example on the bench press go on like the the Berglund style versus like looking uh, have you seen Scott Mendelson bench yeah, I have. Like he pulls his head up off the bench, like tucks his elbows in, uses his lats a lot on the way down, and then he sinks the bar really far and kicks his kicks through his legs. Yeah, and like he, he almost like catapults it off his and chest. And he like he says he physically says like I've heard him say like he uses his quads and his lats more than he uses his pecs, and he's yeah. literally torn his pe- uh, quad bench pressing before. Did he? He tore his pec as well. Oh, yeah. He's torn his pec hard. That photo of him. Yeah. Yeah. But he's torn his quad doing a bench press. Really? Yeah. So, like, if you look at those two contrasting styles, it's like, neither of those is appealing to me. Yeah. But they're so different. For sure. But again, like, that neither of them appeals to you says that there is almost like a universal bench press of, like, when you close your eyes and think of a bench press... Eddie Berglund and like Eddie Berglund and Julius Maddox might both have a good claim to being like the best bench pressers in one way or another, but one is still closer to that quintessential bench for you, right? Mm. 
and but, I guess I mean the the other way to look at it is like if you look at Eddie Berglund for instance like he's extremely good at bench press deadlift suffers because of his leverages mm. like people will look at his bench press and go oh this isn't fair but they'll never consider the implications that his leverages have on his other lifts and how much that takes away from him in that aspect yeah and if you look at like anyone who lifts extreme in any way it's generally not well rounded Sure. And it's generally the people who lift towards the midline of what's considered normal who are more well-rounded, who tend to do better in the total anyway. Like, look at Russ Orhe, like, relatively narrow stance, medium grip bench press, conventional deadlift. Like, he's world-class in one and really, really good at two, and he's the biggest total in the world. Do you reckon? Do you reckon that one of the reasons that Russ has so much appeal, and obviously, like, on top of that is that he's, like the best in the world and has a crazy physique but do you reckon one of the reasons he has so much appeal on social media as well is because his lifting just looks relatable well yeah it's the physique it's the the lifting style and it's the personality he has he's obviously like extremely charismatic and yeah people like him so I guess that almost that again brings us back to this question that I have which is like if somebody comes in and does sort of acknowledge that that it might not be the most optimal way to train, but like, but it just appeals. Like it, it is what it is what appeals to them about lifting to to lift a certain way and try and get as strong as they can. Say with a moderate grip bench press and a higher high bar position when they squat and like trying to squat upright and stuff. You know, is there anything really wrong with that? Because like all the concessions that we make, obviously, like when I make changes to my technique within the rules of powerlifting, I'm trying to do it to maximize the, the amount that I can lift. But ultimately, the technique that I settle on is is in some way arbitrary. Like, it's it's optimal, but it's arbitrary. And the constraints that I've... The, any other constraint I've put on myself is arbitrary too. My choice not to lift equipped, my choice to be drug-free, like, my choice to only train a certain amount of time. All of that is arbitrary. It is a constraint. Don't lie to the people about your natty status, Will. Yeah, okay. Um, imagine if I wasn't natty. <laughs> It'd be the saddest story. <laughs> They're like, we've had some pretty sad stories on weekly ways, but that would be the saddest. Um, but but that's, that's what I mean. Is we all choose to operate within constraints on the basis of what is valuable to us. And so if somebody says, this is just what appeals to me about lifting and I'm doing this for myself and for my self-betterment, don't you think that there's something kind of cool in that? 100%. And we, we mention this all the time, like this is a hobby. And at the end of the day, if you're not enjoying what you're doing, um, why are you doing it? And if, if your lifting technique or the style of you know lifting that you prefer is changing in a way that makes you not actually enjoy your hobby, then you're wasting your time. But at the same time, you have to be cognizant of the fact that if you pick a style that is probably going to lend itself to being less efficient, you're going to put a cap on where your ceiling is. Like if you squat high bar for the rest of your life without a belt, you will not reach your true ceiling if you were to put a belt on or go low bar. Like you just won't. Yeah, well, I think that's true too. But now I'm going to flip it because I've been playing devil's advocate one way and now that you've more or less agreed with me. If, if like this idea of training as an expression of ourself and self-improvement and so on is what we're in for, which I think it is, mm-hmm. then why, why does it matter that our training would reflect what might be like a generally accepted aesthetic? Like, like if I'm training to learn the most about myself I can and be as strong as I can, why should I care that my squat looks like somebody else's squat who might have different anthropometry, different strengths? to me you know somebody who does squat high bar ass to grass and looks really efficient if i just happen to be built in a way that doesn't lend itself to that why should i care that i resemble them well that's a personal decision like whether you do care or not and that's up to the individual like i probably don't care you probably don't care but some people might you know get self-conscious lifting in front of people and might not like a certain style and might not want to perform a certain style in front of a crowd like, you know, some people might have a complete aversion to sumo deadlifts. Even though their sumo might be stronger, they don't want to do it because they think it's inferior, which it is. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, this is an interesting um, analogy. My friend always sends me videos of people's basketball jump shots yeah. who are really ugly. The people are ugly or the jump shot? The jump shot itself, like the technique of the jump shot is really ugly. But like in the video they're making, they're making them. 
he always says to me like would you prefer to shoot 40% with this technique or shoot like the most textbook technique ever but shoot 30% who has the nicest basketball jump shot like Steph Curry or nah Curry's a little like loose a little like unorthodox doesn't he kind of always like fade away and kind of stumble backwards as he shoots no he actually like he actually will like launch his hands and legs forward to try and like make contact with the defender as he follows through why does that get you a foul yeah it can it's bullshit but after he does you've let the ball go you can get yeah so the it's called um, the landing area so the defender can't get in the way of the attacking player's landing area because if the player lands on ankles like you can roll ankles and stuff like that so basketball it's like, puts so much onus on the defender hey like the yeah, way you have to like an plant offensive, and an offensive stand game. upright yeah, to take a charge it's such BS if somebody's running at me and I'm moving sideways and they deliberately veer into me and I just haven't planted both my feet. I shouldn't be penalised for that. That's crap. Well, it depends if you're moving or not. If Once, you're sideways and standing still, you're fine. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. Okay, anyway. so anyway, so who's got a nice <laughs> so, jump shot? So, like, if it's the, it's the same analogies. If you prefer to have an ugly jump shot, but it goes in more often than a really nice-looking jump shot that doesn't go in quite as often. Like, my mate always says, I'd prefer to have the nice-looking jumper that doesn't go in as often. Okay, but here, well... I want to extend your analogy. But for me, like, I would probably prefer to make more. So that's a personal decision of whether I would prefer performance over aesthetic. But let's let's extend the analogy. So let's say you're doing the jump shot and you're fundamentally interested in basketball. Like, you want to learn about basketball and about shooting and stuff. And let's say that the only way that you could learn the most that you could learn about basketball and yourself the basketballer is if you just let your shot be the shot that suits you best. Yeah. Irrespective of how it looks. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, this, um, this is something then that you're actually trading off on your enjoyment of basketball to pursue the aesthetic shot when the other one might suit you better. That's actually the same as training. Correct. Agree. Yeah. But again, I think that's an individual decision that you have to make, whether you care or not. Yeah, but I think I think some people probably need a little bit of guidance in that conversation because, like, if somebody comes to me and let's say they are, let's down the basketball theme. Let's say LeBron James comes to me <laughs> and he says, "Will." I heard you talk about picking up chicks at the gym, and that was some <laughs> that was some bomb advice. Um, <laughs> I want you to train me for squatting. And LeBron says, "I want to squat, bolt upright, ass to grass." I'd be seen, like, "Have you seen the squats?" Yeah, they're terrible. <laughs> so <laughs> but, bad. But my point is, like, LeBron, give or take, being like the best athlete on the planet right now, he's not going to do that, right? Mm. And so I might have to say, "Hey, like, Bron, what's up?" Firstly, like. That's just not going to suit you, and it's going to involve a lot of trade-offs. You know, um, we can get you squatting, and your squat will improve over time, but it may never resemble that. You know, why is it that you want things to look that way? And if he was like, "Well, this is what a cool squat is," I might have to say, "Hey, it's going to put a lot more limitation on you to do that than it would for you know even yourself, Alex, who like you're built much better for squatting than LeBron James." That's probably one one athletic endeavor where you've got him covered because I'm a whole foot shorter. Yeah, well, being a whole foot shorter definitely helps. But, like, but you know, for certain people, that could actually be a much, much, much more limiting trade-off than another. If somebody comes in and, like you or I, they're broadly comp- competent at lifting, like, I could squat upright and really deep, and I'd be weaker, but I'd still be fine at squatting. Mm. But for some people, it'd be terrible. And so, as a, like, as a brand-new lifter, I think, I think it still probably behooves people to just, just do the squat and not worry so much about how it looks so that you develop enough competency to realize like, well, how is it that I want to represent myself in training rather than starting like before you've even seen what, what's on the blank slate, which is blank. Um, before you've even seen what's like, what your limitations are, say I'm going to put more limitations on myself, you know? Mm. Yeah. It's, um, it's almost like you have to see where they are currently, where they want to be Mm. and kind of measure up whether it's worth it to actually put in the effort to get there. If it's only a small change and they're actually quite close, it's probably worth it. Yeah. But if it's like diametrically opposed techniques, then, you know, it might take a couple of years to get there. Yeah. And the the other thing is, um, this just occurred to me as you were speaking, is like a lot of the things that I think, I think people would think of like being quintessential squatting technique, quintessential bench pressing, quintessential deadlifting, they are the more general approaches. And so they're often where people will start anyway. And like what typically happens is people learn to bench press and they put their hands a moderate 
grip width on the bar and they don't really arch excessively hard and they just practice doing some bench. And then over time, they typically work towards, you know, being wider and higher arched if it suits them and so on. And likewise, you know, most people probably start deadlifting with their toes pointing pretty much forward conventional. And maybe they try sumo after a while when they're like, oh, this doesn't suit me that well. Or like they make modifications to their deadlifting style. They pull with a round back and stuff because they realize that's what works for them. But it's what probably will happen in practice for most people is they get the chance to try that stuff until they realize it's limiting or until their body starts directing them to go another way. Mm. You know, Um, I could see you looking at the next question, which was talking about like, limitations we'd put on ourselves in programming and and so on was that where your mind was going i only just opened it oh okay well i guess i guess the next question i'm gonna i'm gonna introduce it because i'm actually curious on your thoughts is like you've sort of said you're you're a true powerlifting purist you know you'd be most interested in maximizing your efficiency but if that's the case why haven't you chosen necessarily to always spend your time with the most absolutely extreme powerlifting oriented approaches and so the first one would be like hyper specialized programming i know you've had some experience doing like only squat bench deadlift and a row but like why don't you still do things that way well i've found with experience that too long of just the comp lifts beats my body up too much and i can't actually sustain that for a long enough period of time to progress okay and i think being able to use movement variability um, in order to change up loading, in order to put your body through different stresses, put your joints at different at different angles, strengthen muscles in different ways is extremely important for longevity. Um, what about for enjoyment? Well, like for I you, mean, would first, you just squat bench deadlift if you could? Um, if I could without any pain, like that is what I enjoy the most. But I don't know how long that would last. So it's it's kind of a, a hypothetical because I don't know if I'd be able to sustain doing like six to 12 months straight of just SPD. Even if my body held up, I might get bored. Um, I had a point. I, I can't remember what I was going to say. Well, me personally, I've had periods of really hyper-specialist training, but I just like training the most when I have a bit of variability. And there's like, like there's all the same physiological reasons you said about keeping myself fresh and like filling in on developmental needs that aren't well targeted by the main lifts and stuff. But mostly like I just like it the most when I have a bit of variability and something I choose to do. And I've spoken about this on the podcast a lot. I choose, you know, maybe a few months, most years or whatever to not do as directed training and like, play around with weightlifting or do some strongman or do bodybuilding and stuff and one of the reasons is that that's part of what i enjoy about the gym and that's part like when people when people talk to me as like will the trainee part of what i envisage about myself is that like i'm rounded and i have those other skills and i have those other interests and and like my my training pool of experience is not just limited to squatting benching and deadlifting and that's that in a way is an aesthetic choice. It's also, it's a result of just my training history, but it's it's become fundamentally important to me. And so I could never see myself choosing to forego that mm. um, in the same way that I could never see myself choosing to forego all other activities to only powerlift, you know? And in a way, that's an analogous decision to people who are choosing to, to pursue lifting in a certain style. Yeah, I think like for me, going back to my roots of training, like when I first first really got into it, was you know higher volumes pushing sets to failure like getting a pump and all that kind of stuff like going back to those kind of training phases for eight to ten weeks at a time is really really enjoyable mm. but the other thing is it refreshes you mentally to get back into the complex again and really give give those a go and then once you do that you get refreshed to go back in the other direction again so it's like you're kind of like consistently stoking the fire of enjoyment by switching up yeah 100% um, the other thing I was going to say with, with um, enjoyment was like for me I enjoy training the most when my body doesn't hurt yeah that's pretty important so like when I do SPD for too long of a time um, consistently you know I start to get niggles that affects my training it affects my my mindset how I feel about training and then like I start to get a little bit down about it um so I think it is important from that aspect to always actually try to stay healthy because that will keep you happy. Yeah, big time. All right. Now we're going to talk practically. 
So let's imagine, Alex, I come to you as a fresh trainee, right? And I say, you know, I want to squat high bar only. I don't want to ever wear supportive equipment. I'm never going to wear a belt and sleeves. I'm only going to squat high bar. I'm going to bench press flat back mid grip and I'm only going to deadlift conventional, which for me would be completely fine. Yep, conventional, and, that's good. And also belt. <laughs> I'm not actually... Yeah, I mean, that is a good start. <laughs> Broadly, to be honest, if I was going to leave anyone with one piece of advice from this podcast is that you should probably just nick sumo. Um, but like, say I have come in and I've said... Also, big, um, big shout out to Zoe Frecklington. She's gone to the dark side. Oh no! So another one bites the dust. Zoe, Zoe, Zoe. Anyway, all those things having been said, <laughs> Zoe's one of Alex's clients. Uh, all those things having been said, um, what? Yeah, what limitations? Like, what different training limitations or or muscle weaknesses might we need to address in somebody who only wants to squat high bar? I've got a few that come to mind. You go first. Okay, so high bar squat and particularly beltless high bar, which gets important. High bar squat is going to be more demanding on the quads and when the quads fail, that chain reaction that we see where the hips have to kick back, which puts more strain through the back, which strains the upper back, that whole chain sequence is exaggerated enormously and it's exaggerated typically because we squat a bit deeper high bar but also because the length of the back between the bar and your hip is longer. So the bar being higher up on your back means the length of the back is longer. And so that means your upper back, so your your thoracic extensor strength, is going to get extra taxed. And then that's probably exaggerated a bit by the lack of a belt because you probably just have a little bit less postural stability. So if somebody came to me and was like, I only want to train high bar and beltless, I'd be giving a lot of consideration to their upper back strength, like a lot. Um, to help them grind through heavy squats. And then obviously I'd have to emphasize making sure they had really good um, really good knee extensor strength. And then to a degree, hip extension strength from deep hip flexion. But that should be a consideration for pretty much every squatter. So plenty of quads, but then they'd have to have like a really, really strong upper back to support them once, once lifts got hard or else I think they'd just abruptly miss a lot. Yeah, obviously agree. I don't know if those recommendations are too different to anyone squatting low bar with a belt like anyone who squats a ton has a fucking strong upper back and big quads and strong quads yeah like, I, I think th- i think it's obviously exaggerated a little bit um but i don't think that's too different no i don't think that's too different but where it might and again it probably only matters by like by points of degree but where it might matter in a training scenario is say you're me i squat low bar i have a reasonably strong upper back um when I'm when I'm experiencing some positional difficulties at the bottom of my squat, like I can benefit from doing some targeted quad work. But things like pin squats and stuff carry over really well to me. But for if I was only ever squatting high bar, maybe I'd do a lot more front squatting and safety bar squatting, both because they tax my quads and because they'd really, really fortify that upper back a lot. Um and so I think like I think movement selection might be biased slightly more towards just making sure you had a lot of brute strength there than it would necessarily go towards like making you absolutely finesse your position i think but i don't know yeah like obviously i agree but that said like i think that there's a huge merit to having more upright torso in a safety bar or in a front squat or in a high bar even if you squat low bar yeah like that that is still there for the reasons of contrasting load managing fatigue strengthening weak positions like yeah but it's also said. that's what biomechanically suits those lifts you know mm. the weight is more distributed forward so you are slightly more upright yeah yeah um what about with the bench press so so again let's let's presume a degree of contrast so somebody would be capable of benching with a with a large arch but they choose to bench flat back i mean you're already actually getting a lot of exposure to long range of motion benching so something that you've commonly said is like people who bench with a high arch for contrast and in volume work should maybe consider flattening that arch out and doing just more work over over distance would you try and create contrast the other way or do you think that doesn't really that doesn't really need to happen well i do think that people who bench narrow grip and with less of an arch do have a higher sticking point so i could see the the utility of using like a board bench or pin bench with a narrower grip just to strengthen the triceps and keep the elbows um, under and in front of the bar Mm. Um, but again, like that's going to be a case by case basis. I think 
you know, the, the training principles don't change. It's just slightly altered based on someone's grip and someone's um, arch size. Yeah, I I think probably if you bench with a kind of flatter back, then probably dedicate like obviously tricep strength is going to be important because you do have that longer range and just the longer range that you grind through. But I also think having like good general shoulder strength really matters. And so doing some bodybuilding work and probably a little bit more overhead pressing and incline benching and stuff like that would carry over a lot. But otherwise, I think it'd be a matter of getting like just brutally big and strong and being less concerned about absolutely finessing your technique, you know? Yeah, for sure. Like you, you, you could probably get away with using more variety all the way around the year um, than someone who's got a really specific technique that needs to be dialed in. So, you know, if you did plan on competing with a narrow grip and no arch, um, you could probably keep your inclines, your overheads, um, your dumbbell work in the whole time versus someone who needs to really practice that technique more often. You might have to do two or three comp bench sessions a week. For sure. All right. And what about the deadlift? Let's just say deadlifting beltless only. Is there anything that particularly comes to mind for you? Um, just drilling that torso rigidity. And I'm not really sure how you would tackle it versus with a belt. Mm, um, I actually think it's probably the least dissimilar as in it's the most similar yeah i i think i think um controlled eccentrics are very helpful for for um maintaining spinal uh, spinal integrity torso rigidity so like controlled eccentric touch and go deadlifts or just lots of rdl work um but outside of that like just your usual deadlift programming for sure i i agree entirely with that i actually think there's very little that you'd have to add so one final question before we hit the overrated, underrated, probably rated one, which is how how do other constraints that we choose to operate under impact our training? Like are there ways that it's analogous or, or otherwise? So I'm thinking things like body composition goals or chasing other sports. So maybe in like extremely quick form, let's say somebody comes to you and says like, Alex, I want to train for powerlifting, but I'm a bodybuilder at heart. How does that change your your decision making approach as a powerlifting coach? Well, the first thing is what weight class they compete in. If they have aspirations to step back on stage, or they just generally want to be lean all the time, you you're not going to be able to push them up weight classes. Um, the next thing would be how much of their training program is uh, catered to bodybuilding versus how much is catered to powerlifting. So, kind of similar to what we mentioned before, you might keep those longer range of motions in. A lot, a lot longer. Um, you might not go as specific closer to comp prep just to, to keep keep them jacked and tanned. Um, Tanning is what important. was the what was the other one? What was the other question? Um, that was pretty much it. And what about but what about in terms of like maybe goal setting and things from a powerlifting perspective? Would it change how you would structure a competition schedule or? Um, yeah, like they wouldn't be competing as frequently because they needed to spend more of their time training with higher volumes and doing lots of variations and um, stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I agree with all of that. And I think the same could be said for having other sporting commitments generally, which was my next one is, you know, if like Alex played basketball for a while, but I think you were pretty happy to treat basketball as a hobby rather than of, of equal importance with powerlifting. But when people come in and they say like, I want to powerlift, but you know, I'm also going to play basketball two times a week, highly competitively, we need to make accommodations in the training for that. And it might be that training becomes a little bit easier or, you know, we have more contrast between heavy and light sessions or we bias sessions towards one end of the week when basketball games aren't, things like that. But, you know, you do make accommodations in light of that too. Mm. And the same is true for time commitment limitations generally. If people say they can only train twice a week, then that's just the package that you have to work within. And I guess the reason I wanted to have that discussion, even if it was just in brief, was just to highlight that, like, people's preferences and their desires for training aren't entirely uniform and even though as coaches we're wired to think about like how do we optimize output from our athletes from their end what constitutes like the thing that's going to make them most happy isn't always the same it's not always being the best powerlifter bar none it's being the best powerlifter i can be within the constraints that are also important to me and so our job and their job is to like make the best trade-offs we can yeah, and, and that's what you think when you start coaching powerlifters is that everyone's going to come to you and be be wired how you are. They're going to want to train five times a week. They're going to want to you know go to nationals and put in all this time and effort in the nutrition and 
and recovery and all those things and not have anything going on on the side. But the reality of it is that like people have vastly different lives that you have to cater to. Mm. And you know, the more you can learn about your clients, learn about what they do, learn about what they like, learn about what drives them, the better you're going to be able to cater a program to them. 100%. That's a pretty salient point. Why don't we leave it there, take a quick break, and then we'll hit you with underrated, overrated, probably rated. Right, it's weekly weights. We're back on episode 107. Seven. Seven. Um, and Alex is panicking because he hasn't thought of an underrated, overrated, probably rated topic. But this one is miscellaneous. Like, my one is absolutely not gym related. And, but I actually think it's a good question. And it's underrated, overrated, probably rated. Justin Bieber. Interesting. I have many thoughts. Yeah, well, that's why I think it's a good one. What are your thoughts? Early big like bowl cut fringe Justin Bieber was that like baby 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 yeah yeah like first Bieber Mm. overrated terrible most views ever on YouTube until um, Gangnam Style came along that was a great video clip banger yeah Um, then his uh, which album was it the one with the like orange background the one that's got girlfriend the one that was like love yourself or whatever I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up. It's probably called Girlfriend or something. That sounds like him. Was a song called Girlfriend? I think that was a song. I don't know. Hang on. This is great listening for everyone. Can no. you have some music, Will? You <laughs> Found it? Justin Bieber's discology. Purpose. The album purpose. Okay. What was it believe? Do you believe? believe. It was believe. Yeah really good album and that's when he like started going a little bit like dancey like poppy okay and that's when I liked it okay whether but Bieber in general overrated underrated probably rated I'd say probably rated he's a star he is a star he deserves to be a star he he's lived like a real star's life as well that's the like as in he's become like a quintessential star because he's had like crises in the public eye and things as well hasn't he Mm. You went know, off the rails for a while. Went off the rails. He's kind of doing a bit of a James O'Connor. And James O'Connor, his his nickname, the Wallabies player, was Bieber for a while because he had the same hairdo. And James O'Connor's gone through the fucking bizarre transformation as well. He went... Um, when he was in Europe, he got busted. Uh, I, I want to say that he was one of the guys who was busted doing cocaine with Ali Williams, who's an ex-All Blacks player. Hmm? Nothing. Well, anyway, he got... He got busted doing that, and um, I think might have been something else. Um, but point is, he was kind of he he eventually was told like you got to pull your head in because it was so difficult to um, to deal with, and he did like these. It was like a man camp or something from some guy who teaches you to be a better man, where they do like a whole bunch of deprivation training and shit, and like um, sounds like something David Goggins would run. Yeah, like uh, it's a whole bunch of like mindfulness and meditation and then deprivation training and like cold exposure and shit. It's like a mixture of David Goggins, Wim Hof, Wim Hof and the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and now and now he fully he fully like goes around proselytizing this whole lifestyle of like basically be a legend, be zen and stuff. And he's actually playing good footy and supposedly a lot easier to deal with. But well, I feel like it's just going from being fucking 100 one end of the spectrum, which is being a dickhead, to 100 the other end of the spectrum, which is being like Goku. But I mean, in both instances, first of all, James O'Connor never hit the peak that Bieber did. <laughs> yeah, true. And to even put them in the same sentence is a little bit disrespectful <laughs> yeah, to Justin Bieber. Insulting. Hey, I saw James O'Connor's graduation date at uni which was his high school girlfriend she was very attractive he was doing fine I'm sure he has always done fine with the ladies yeah though he's shorter than his stats say online yeah Yeah, he's like 5'10 anyway um yeah firstly Bieber peak is considerably higher than Justin uh, James O'Connor I don't even know his name international pop sensation over the course of a decade was slightly better off than like second tier Australian sports yeah he was never he was never like even like a staple for the Wallabies yes he was he was like okay he was a staple but he was never like the first five guys picked he would have been pretty close other than the fact that he was such a knob like when he missed the team announcement 
in 2011 because he'd been drunk in an airport. <laughs> um, that was pretty bad. But, man, the guy was so good. And also, like, him being a dickhead is also not even close to the level of stuff that Bieber did. Like, Bieber, like, crashed a Lamborghini, like, on Hollywood Boulevard, like, while drunk. Dude, the guy missed a World Cup squad team announcement because he was pissed. That's pretty bad. Like, as in, considering the resources available to them, like, what's a Lamborghini to Justin Bieber? Yeah, true. You know, that's like... That's like, ha- that's like f- having a six-pack at the airport. Yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're right. Justin Bieber is on another level. But anyway, in both, in both instances, it's young people getting given money too early, and then they don't know what to do with it, so they go and spend it in fast life, and then they crash, and then they come out the other side. Like, Bieber's like fully Christian now. He's like, really? Jesus loves you, like all this stuff. He put up a post recently. How easy must it be to go Christian once you've already done all the fun things that you're not allowed to do mm. if you're Christian, you know? Mm. Mm. Something anyway, smells fishy there. Justin Bieber, properly rated. What would you say? Yeah, probably properly rated. That's just my very short version. But you know what I'll like? You know what I'll say? I think he's almost reflexively underrated. I think a lot of people are grudgingly having to acknowledge that he's not that bad now. But like because but, they hated him so much yeah. early, they're just like, nah, default hate. But like... You know, he like his last few songs he's released have actually been all right. You know, you gotta like you gotta give it to the man. He's done okay. Hundred percent. It's the it's those early days clouding the the recent stuff that's actually good. Yeah, and I would say the same for James O'Connor. Poor guy. Yep. Yep. Okay, my turn, Alex. You gotta think of one on the I spot. I still haven't thought of one. Um, well, I went pretty left field, so I'm happy to answer pretty left field from you. He's. Alex is currently looking at my kitchen as though, <laughs> as though he's going to see. Like, what are you going to ask about my range hood? I love my range hood. <laughs> okay. Overrated, underrated, properly rated. Zoom meetings. Oh. Oh. So I want to tell a story before I give my answer. I came across a news story about a guy. I think he was French or possibly Spanish. And I think he was a principal at a school and he had to tender his resignation because he thought he turned his camera off on Zoom but hadn't and had a shower whilst the school Zoom meeting was on. So he had his had it facing the shower so that he could so that he could hear and see people, right, while he was in the shower and he just got butt naked and was standing there and everyone could see him. There was a similar um, story about a lady in a um, in like a work Zoom meeting and she like muted herself but she thought she had turned a video off and then she went into her room and got changed and the whole office was watching it get changed. Oof. Um, rough. Yeah, rough times. Um, I think they're, I think they're about properly rated um, and like put it like this, they're definitely not underrated. Like, Zoom's got a lot of pitfalls. Obviously, we just spoke about the potential to accidentally get naked. Um, But it can be very difficult to operate a Zoom meeting with, like, a large number of people when you all want to have conversations. The quality of audio and video can dip in and out. Obviously, that's that's often because people's internet's bad and stuff. Um, And it pales in comparison to a real meeting. But, like, as a workaround, it's so useful. And the fact that you can get people on it, you can record the meetings... You can review them in posterity and stuff. Like, there's a lot of really good stuff. I'd have to say it's properly rated. Alex? Yeah, I would agree. It really really highlights how much can get done over a computer screen. Um, and I think like, a lot of companies are going to go to more online meetings in the future knowing that they don't have to hire office space and things like that. It's going to save them money. Yeah. But it's definitely not as good as talking to someone in the flesh like i've driven all the way over to bronte today to do this podcast can we not disclose my location on air uh, i just I'll presume s- the fans will be here i'll say the address <laughs> sure yeah you try um, um you just bleep me out um like i've come all the way over here today the fact that by the way at this point in our podcast career that you still think i actually edit the podcast at all Oh no! It's tragic too. Well, I don't listen, so I don't know. <laughs> or can you start listening? I just download. I just download. And oh, okay, thanks. Um, yeah, like I've come all the way over here because it's so much better to do a podcast in person than it is over Zoom, and also my internet at home sucks. Yeah, 
Shout out TPJ. Shout out TPJ. Fuck you, TPJ. Honestly, I'm with Aussie Broadband. It's so good. I mean, I have one person in my entire property using the internet at any time, so I can't really say that it's because of Aussie Broadband. Yeah, I mean, ours definitely got worse when COVID hit and everyone was working from home. It was like everyone was using the same like internet resource. Yeah, I'm not and really Netflix sure it works like that. Fucking so bad during COVID. Netflix was so shit. Yeah, that's unfortunate. You know, from a like investment perspective, all subscription-based services have outperformed the market by so much. Of course. Of course. Like but because obviously everybody trims every other expense, but they don't think about their Netflix and they're not going to cancel it because they need it. They don't think about their Spotify like, mm. you know, Amazon Prime, all that stuff like absolutely killed it in this in this time and and I can't ever see the world going back to like to to things like purchasing individual songs you know or purchasing like going and buying a DVD like what's the probability you'll ever buy the box set of anything well no but I mean the only reason you would do that was to actually have the like memorabilia yeah but I would only do that if like you know fucking Gandalf himself was going to sign my box at Lord of the Rings when was the last year the Wallabies won the World Cup 99 by that box set honestly that would be pretty good watching there was lots of there was lots of good footy in the 99 World Cup you know in that whole World Cup I think the Wallabies conceded one try no yeah that's how good they were defensively like ridiculously good um but I actually think I actually think there's probably been better footy played in other World Cups. Um, like, 99 was a good World Cup. What was the year where they um, made that advantage rule, where it made the game a lot faster? And they tried to dis- uh, they tried to stop guys from taking penalties all the time? I actually don't know. Because um, that was when, like, footy got really fast and, and there was much more, many more tries. Yeah, I think I it was, like, around 07. No, it was definitely before 07, surely. But I don't know. I don't know when the advantage rule started, if I'm honest. Really don't know. Um, but yeah, I, fuck the 99 box set. That'd be something. But like, I think the... But then, anyway, there are still some movies that you can't... And TV shows that you can't watch unless you actually buy them. Like, on, if you, do you have Apple movies? Do you have Apple TV? No. Well, you have to like... Like, we had to buy... We had to rent Dodgeball the other night. Because it's not on Netflix, not on Stan. That stinks. It's like... Good movie, but cool. like, great movie yeah <laughs> it's so funny movie. yeah you know i um on that note this is the worst thing because like netflix is going to acquire and stand but netflix is going to acquire like over time more and more and more and more tv shows because like people if you make a tv show you want people to watch it and so when netflix comes knocking and says like i want to buy the rights to this Eventually, when you can do it, like you don't have an obligation not to do it, you're going to say yes. And they've also got so much money. So much they're money. Just, like the amount of money, do you know how much they paid Dave Chappelle? No. They paid Dave Chappelle $60 million to do three stand-up specials. Really? In three years. Wow. I could do three stand-up specials for $60 million. Yeah, but you're not Dave Chappelle. No, I'm not funny at all. But um, but anyway, point is, because that's going to happen, it like eventually you're going to run into the circumstance I ran into which is where I bought all three seasons of Avatar The Last Airbender on YouTube. What is that? Are you serious? <laughs> yes, I'm serious. That is one of the greatest children's anime shows of all time. Um, it's so good. I'm like genuinely, if anybody in the audience doesn't know that, like there'll be a few, but the vast majority will know it. Point is, I bought all of them and it's good watching. Then Netflix just fucking got the rights to it out of nowhere. And I already have Netflix. And so now I'm like, I wasted $30 or whatever. It's not very expensive, but like it's the principle. You know, if I bought it in one place, another place shouldn't just be able to have it for free. The most annoying bit is that they buy show, like the rights to a show for a certain time period. Oh, really? So like they come off Netflix. I didn't know that. Like for instance, like How I Met Your Mother was on Australian Netflix for like two years. And now it's not, but it's on stand now. But like if you pick up a show and you're like binging through a show and then all of a sudden it's just like disappears off the service, it sucks. You know what Stan have done that really pissed me off? They have Lord of the Rings, only the third one, only the extended edition, 
which is four and a half hours long. And, like, they don't have Fellowship of the Ring or the Two Towers. And I'm like, why, you know? Well, that happened with Harry Potter on Netflix. They had, like, two, three, and six, like, the most random three out of the eight movies. And I think it was because it cost them too much to get the whole series. Like, to buy three individually cost them, like, 5% of buying eight. But buy three in a row. You know what I mean? Like, Agree. But just the first one, Lord of the Rings. Or just the first two Harry Potters. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, Harry Potter, you can... Because they're so episodic, you can basically watch them individually. But it would still be better to buy the first three or the last three. Lord of the Rings, like, buy the first one if you're going to have one. But, like, why would you do that ever? Get all three, you know? Also, Lord of the Rings sucks. Wow. Um, I'm leaving this podcast on that note. That was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like Lord of the Rings overrated Star Wars overrated like honest to God nobody with the faintest grounding at all in literature especially fantasy literature but to a degree literature generally in the world could argue that Lord of the Rings is overrated that is an appallingly bad take maybe the maybe the book isn't the movies are good. The movies... The movies are good. Ah, shit, Will. I fell asleep 30 minutes into the first one. Okay, wrong. The movies are... No, not are, wrong. I did fall asleep 30 minutes no, into the no, first one. No, no, you fell asleep, but you can fall asleep. You could fall asleep in a nuclear holocaust. Like, it wouldn't stop you. <laughs> that would <right>? be easy. <laughs> easy. Um, <laughs> the Lord of the Rings movies are good. The first Lord of the Rings movie is especially good. They do take a lot of liberties with the story, but for the most part, they're not, they're not particularly bad. But you got to remember the Lord of the Rings movies as well. They were like the first, the first serious sword and sorcery fantasy aimed at adults that was remotely successful in cinemas for decades, possibly ever that I could think of. And the source material, the books are so staggeringly significant that if you think they're bad, you're just fucking wrong and stupid. So no, that's I'm like literally the not the target market for fantasy at all like I don't have any the only fantasy you like is fantasy football and basketball basketball yeah alright I'm I'm appalled but fantasy basketball is based off real life statistics which is real Lord of the Rings is based on real life statistics Lord of the Rings is based off fucking garbage nonsense book alright I'm out of here Will if anybody's listened through that I I would have like I would have hung up long before we got to Lord of the Rings, but if anybody listened, I'm sorry. If you did listen and you agree with me that Lord of the Rings is shit, just message me, Alex Hayes underscore process on Instagram and we can talk about it. Yeah, get fucked.